Blog Talk Radio.
judgment comes upon the law. No time to waste, run to the cross. Drunk old lies of this age. Feels too smart to believe. Trade their future for their lust. Blinding passion, they call you to join them. Fall into the order that Satan has designed. Men getting ready to sell their soul for a chance to receive his mind. Father, we praise you, Lord. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the the journey. We thank you for the opportunity that the journey has brought before us, the opportunity to continue to grow and, and, and to just confess right before you and tell you how much we are in love with you. For some of us who are just uh, maybe a little bit further back on the journey, uh, praying fervently to for you, Father, to fill us with your love. Uh, and Lord Jesus, for the opportunity, and we praise you for this to, uh, you know, to get to a place where we're literally having conversations with you and, and sharing all of our little secrets, which we already know that you know, but we also know that you like it when we share it with you, even though you do know it. Um, and we praise you for that, Lord. We thank you for every chance that we have here on this earth to get um, our ducks in a row and things in order uh, for the days that we have uh, immediately ahead of us, as well as possibly some days uh, that might drag on a little bit uh, if uh, history continues to repeat itself as it has for the last 12 years. Uh, but nevertheless, Father, we praise you because we do see, you know, um, providing that you keep your providing that you keep your uh, hand of protection. Um, off the earth in general, not not individuals and not those who are praying for super, uh, supernatural protection all the time, but the earth in general, uh, as was the, with the case of the pandemic and a whole lot of other stuff that's going on right now, as long as that stays in place. Um, it's reasonable for us, I guess, Lord, to look at the um, projections of the darkness, uh, dates like 2030 for the Great Reset, um, understanding that Obama the Antichrist is controlling reptilian geriatric Biden. Uh, you got the Klaus Schwab entity, which probably, if my guess is correct, is the Pindar right now, which is uh, well about as evil as it gets. And we see all of these evil plans moving forward. It doesn't seem to matter, Father, how many people are out there in their social media bravado, 
hiding behind their keyboards, uh, making, you know, mighty statements about how brave they're going to be when the days, you know, that they're going to stop the WEF or they're going to stop the global satanic crime syndicate. But at the same time, uh, also knowing that the last time anybody, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're saying it in the midst of watching people go in jail, some of them for 20 years, uh, over a, an absolute false flag event known as January 6th. So, Father, we just praise you. We thank you very, very much for the opportunity that you've given us that um, look at ourselves as we ought, as citizens of heaven, and um, really don't care. You know, we don't care what country a person is from because as part of the body of Christ, we're shrugging our shoulders. We're just waiting for you to come and get us, Father. We're looking for the opportunities that you may lay before us to stand on holy ground and touch somebody else's life, whether it is um, uh, through uh, an opportunity to witness, especially in a careful, um, targeted, well chosen manner uh, nowadays because it's just a different kind of a minefield out there right now uh, but also the opportunities that you've laid before us father to draw in uh, through spiritual warfare prayer to draw in by praying for the lost people of the world and to also be at the ready uh, to change people's lives by just loving upon them giving uh, when the opportunity I mean now giving helping people pay for groceries has a whole new meaning today than it did five eight ten years ago and we just praise you for those opportunities, Lord. We thank you for everything that you have brought us through, the refiner's fire, the apparent, the times where we were taken behind the barn and chastened. We thank you, Father God, for always being there to rescue us and pull us out of a bad situation, albeit at the last minute, as you test each and every one of us, Father, in the days that we are going through right now and Surely, again and again, as we progress into the future, we just give you all the praise and glory. And now to him, our Lord Jesus, who's able to keep us from stumbling and present us faultless before the presence of your glory, Father God, with exceeding joy. And to you, Father, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power both now and forevermore, Father. Amen.
Well, praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. You know, doggone electronic gizmos and gadgets. I just want to get out my baseball bat. Sometimes I'm whacking them upside. But then, of course, I just have more repair work to do then later. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. But anyway, so, um, so what's going on? Real quick. So a little bit of a recap. Um, I took uh, Friday off uh, from the prayer vigil to do some celebrating. Now, translated, what that means is that I decided, even though I'm on this 16 by 8 keto diet, and it's actually working because doing the 16 by 8 intermittent fasting, which I'm taking very seriously, uh, in combination with a super low carb, you know, can of tuna here, sardines there. Uh, egg, egg, you know, egg omelet, egg and cheese omelet there, you know. But anyway, I just decided I was so uh, blown away and thrilled by uh, actually receiving the job offer that I did from the company that I've been negotiating with. You might say, well, wait a minute, wait, 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 John. Okay, now, didn't you just tell us that they were asking for lists and information and it was an integrity issue and the Lord had prompted you with kind of a pat on the back uh, by, uh, you know, showing you, he, this is how God talks to me all the time, one of the many ways, and um, that is, uh, I'll say something, or I'll make a decision, or I'll do an event, or I'll pray over something, and then bam, something will just show up right in my face, okay? But I have all those kinds of things loaded up on my, uh, uh, you know, my Android device, so, uh, you know, the Lord can use, if you queue them all up, God can make the things pop in front of your face when he wants to. And if the timing is perfect and it's exactly a perfect word, then you're like, oh, wow. Well, what appears to have happened is a little bit different than I had anticipated. So, yes, I did get the little pat on the back from the Lord about integrity of my actions, the fact that I, I felt that it, you know, there was some integrity issues going on in the conversation. Um, I pulled back. And in the meantime, <clears throat> in the meantime, uh, I went ahead and pulled back. They said good luck, all kind of thing. I did tell them that you know if anything changes, I'll let them know. You know, but I, I really, you know, mostly just you know platitudes. And anyway, so um, and then I get taken in at my current you know employer or whatever. I get taken into this monstrous meeting with like way way too many managers, and um, and of course that's the kind of things that happen. I mean, really, I, I don't want to get into all the details of the mechanics of the business and how it runs and everything like that. But I will say that um, what I, the dynamics that I saw in play were absolutely horrific. Um, only because I have so much experience in, the, in this business and I've worked for, with so many different types of companies that I could see the writing on the wall. And what's fascinating is when I saw how they were operating and how they were talking and what they were, oh, well, we got to have a margin of this, that, and the other thing. I take pride in my margin and blah, 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 and this kind of thing. Um, I was thinking, you know, and of course they want to farm things out to India because it increases the margins. And, you know, my I worked at PwC years ago, and they basically lied to our faces, all 1,300 of us uh, in the solution center, and they lied to every one of our faces and had this big party and whoop-de-doo and all that kind of thing. No, they really did. Uh, they had, uh, um, like, Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders, marching bands. I mean, all kind. they made such a fuss because they wanted to tell us how wonderful we were. Three weeks later, we were all laid off. 1,300 people tossed out into the street because they moved the whole operation over to India. See, now I'm seeing those same exact dynamics unfolding where I am right now. And then I go into this other meeting with, with another fellow who's that much further down the totem pole than I am. 
but a really nice guy. And he said, we were talking about these, the mechanics of how the direction that all this is heading and how um, they sell, they, they don't want to mess with anything under $500,000. It's all, you know, gazillions or nothing kind of thing. Uh, you know, I, but, but what ends up happening is they go into a pool of resources. That's what they call us, resources. And they throw resources at a project. And uh, and one of the guys that I work with said, oh, wow, that's just like what happened to me the other day when they put me on the XYZ project. And I was like, uh-oh, because what that indicates is that they're actually further along in their progression of going to that very bad place um, <clears throat> than I realized. And then I thought to myself, Okay, this isn't good because, you know, if they want to keep their margin higher, then they're not going to be able to use me on all that many projects because my bill rate is a lot higher. And um, that, you know, there was just all kinds of things that were entering into my head, and I was looking at these dynamics and folding, and there were VPs that were arguing with each other, which, by the way, if you ever see that, you better get ready to, to boogie. Okay, when when uh, when uppity ups, you know, VPs and higher start to, you know, you know, in front of other people in chat rooms and things, start to, you know, oh, I don't, I don't like how this is going. I, I disagree with this method here. Uh, we need to change this and that, and that, you know, whatever. So anyway, I was looking at the whole grand scheme. Oh, yeah, we got to farm per, certain percentage in India. And I, I'm like seeing my whole life replaying all over again. And I'm thinking to myself, this is going to blow up. They're not going to pull it off. Um, or if they do, it'll be limping along. And see, the other thing too was the the uh, head guy of the company had also made a comment uh, in a prior meeting. You know, something along the lines of, you know, if this Russian war stops, then the economy will turn around and we'll be doing really good. But if the Russian war doesn't stop, well, it could be some pretty bumpy roads. Which, by the way, is Illuminati code for layoffs. <laughs> okay. So anyway, um, but you got to know how the elites think, and you got to know who they are and how how they think of you, um, and you got to also know that they they're programmed from a very young age to lie flat out right at you. So anyway, um, you know it's a, it's it's creepy, and and when you're onto them and you're waking aware of how they operate, and then you see other people, you know, especially in your leadership team that don't get it. And, you know, they're like sitting there asking questions going, I wonder why so-and-so went on leave of absence. You know, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And I'm, I'm thinking, knock, knock, who's there? Dude, it wasn't a leave of absence. They fired the guy. It was a, it was a sacrificial land thing. But the problem is there's so many, you know, really great expert, um, you know, industry leaders out there in, in the business that I work in that do not understand the mindset of the big four and how they operate. And when you've been in that group for years, you know how dangerous it is. Okay, if you're, you know, it's it's even dangerous for the associate partners. It's 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 very backstabbing and stuff. So, anyway, so what what ended up happening was I got out of that that particular meeting. Um, oh, and there was some other chatter about you know some pretty high. Uh, senior folks having been yelled at uh, on, you know, literally and right in front of their face yelled at, uh, you know, because supposedly they weren't making the numbers that they needed to make or whatever the case may be. And of course, that's just a 
jack and apes with a big fat mouth, uh, you know, saying stuff because they're operating out of emotions and they have no understanding of the sales cycle. They have no understanding of the client. They have no understanding of anything, but they got a big fat mouth. Anyway, so, um, you know, the devil has a way, God has a way, judgment will work in the favor of the servants of the Lord, and eventually those entities will find themselves in a place that they don't want to find themselves. But anyway, sometimes, you know, it's kind of like this. If I was going to use a metaphor, it's not a matter of knowing that you're standing on the Titanic. The ship is already listing, and the water is starting to wash up over the side of the ship. You know, there comes a point where you just got to go ahead and say, I'm going to dive. Well, anyway, so then what I did was I, I was looking at the situation, and I was like – Originally, I was I was pulling out my my Roger's 1993 Thesaurus, which by the way is one of the best ones ever for casting lots. I was getting ready to get some additional confirmations from the Lord because I thought to myself, because I had talked to somebody else and they said I don't think you heard them right. They never said anything like that to me, and I was thinking, man, did I overreact? Because I'm really hardcore about ethics, you know. And so, um, so anyway. <sighs> I, I I looked at the whole situation and I thought, well, I better cast lots. I got a number of different ways that I can do it, and uh, you know, yes, golden, yes, no coins that I can spin or or flip into my lap, um, you know, whatever. Or I can use the, the the thesaurus, which has worked fabulously for me in the past. But this time, I was overwhelmed. This time it was almost like the Spirit of God took a hold of me and said, it just like controlled me. And my hand went right over to the email, the private email, and I, I just typed in a message and I said, having second thoughts, if you're still interested, please reach out to me, blah, 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 this, that, and the other thing. Anyway, then I got an offer letter. Okay, so praise God for that. For for a lot more, uh, actually, well, not a lot more, but, you know, um, uh, a noteworthy amount more, uh, and, uh, you know, complimentary, if you will. And, um, anyway, so long story, I was like, you know, wow. So it, it took, you know, because they could have just as easily just sent me an email, uh, you know, and been done with it. No, sorry. We got another candidate we're talking to, you know, have a nice day. Thank you very much for blah, 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 and this, that, and the other thing. But that's not what happened. It was actually more like there was a little bit of that, like, uh, well, I've got to check my budget, and, well, i got to do this. And I was just total humble pie, and I just said, I understand completely. You know, because at this point, the upper hand is no longer – I don't have the upper hand in, in the negotiation process any longer. Once, once you turn down the initial offer, um, you can negotiate on the initial offer. But once you walk away from that initial offer, the ball's back in their court. All right, you understand? So then, then it, you know, but I humble pied up. I waited a couple of days, and then, bam, praise Jesus, uh, in came, you know, an email and said, can we talk for 30 minutes? You got to get a blah, blah, this, that, and the other thing. And it was, it was all very positive. Now, the hard thing for me, because it's that integrity thing that just keeps me up, and when I say it keeps me up at night, all night long last night, I was just rolling around in bed. I couldn't even get close to a wink of sleep. And, um... Uh, you know, it's, I looked at the, the calendar and I realized that if I, 
because of course naturally you know if if they if somebody's hire if a company's hiring you especially in this economy they have work that needs to be done okay they don't want to dilly dally while you're out there going and visiting your your aunt Susie and you know uncle Jeff or whatever they want you to get you on board and they want you to start getting productive right away because they need it they've got clients that are waiting and you know they're they, they're having to put them on hold and, and there's like a backlog okay so I kind of knew that instinctively I've been doing this like forever and um, I you know so I looked at the clock and I realized I said to him I said you know the only way that I'm going to get my bonus payout from Q4 is I'm going to have to sit on this and not tell anybody until that bonus payout hits on February the 15th because my company <clears throat> takes away your bonus all right. If you are, you know, voluntarily or involuntarily, and oh, by the way, they're quite kind to put that in all capital letters inside your little, uh, hey, you got a little Q2 or Q4 bonus or whatever the case is. In, in your little email, they warn you, you know, you know, that kind of thing. They're very, not very nice. Okay. So anyway, long story short, I thought to myself, well, the only way I'm going to be able to do this is keep my mouth shut and wait for the bonus uh, to hit the bank, which ought to be on the 15th. At least that's what they said. And then if that occurs, then at that point, I have, I'm going to have to do what I really dread, which is to get with you know the, the super-duper higher-up fellow and uh, a guy that happens to like me, by the way. And I generally like him, although I also am afraid of him because I know how explosive he, he, he can be. And um, uh, anyway, uh, <clears throat> so and I got to turn around. And I got to tell him, uh, hey, got some bad news for you. I'm uh, I'm leaving and I'm giving you a three day notice. <laughs> OK, two days. OK, maybe I. But anyway, you know, he, he let me tell you something. If I gave him three weeks notice, this guy would be pissed. All right. OK, so two days. This guy's going to be livid. All right. And that's just his, his type of personality. You know, there's a million things I could say. I could say, look, man, there's, I had no choice. Uh, it was the only way I could get my bonus. I could say that, and that would be the truth. I could also say, hey, I gave you more time than this company gave any of the people that it fired in the last riff. More time. So that's a true statement, too. Um, but um, I still feel crummy about it because eth ethically, I'm you know I don't like to burn bridges. Although the vast majority of companies, all I, you know, and I'm not going to get into this, but I've noticed that over the years, the vast majority of companies, they all tend to hold a grudge. Whenever somebody leaves the company, it's kind of like wow, you know, they play that little game where oh, you gave a proper notice and HR loves you, and they you know, and it's not it's not like they're you know, but privately and sociopolitically, they don't want you to come back. They're like, hey, you dared to leave the family. How dare you leave the family? You know, and that kind of thing. You know, so. But here's the thing: when the Titanic is tipped over and there's fires everywhere, and you've got like tiger sharks in the water and all that kind of stuff, who wants to jump back on that ship, anyways? You gotta be completely insane. So anyway, um, uh, so praise the Lord, thank you, Jesus. I just have to. I just am dreading. Uh, you know, the dynamics, the date dynamics that happened to fall into play here because uh, it just lined up in a crummy way that gave me no chance. I, I, you know, I just don't like walking out the door on somebody when very short notice, I don't, you know. So when I'm, you know, so anyway, so I'm not going to worry about it. You know, the Lord, God is in control. Um, I was, like I said, I was rolling around in the bed last night. I believe it was last night. I think it was last night. I'm trying to think. Sometimes I forget. Maybe it was Saturday, Friday night. I'm not sure. But anyway, 
And I was, you know, I, I just couldn't, I, the, the integrity issues and everything were driving me nuts and the idea of having to say something and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, I'm waking up and I'm looking up the clock and it's like, hey, 11-11, 11-11 I'm seeing. Uh, more than one place, by the way. Uh, and I was like, okay, well, that uh, to me is the Lord saying, you know, calm, calm your jets, you know, chill out. Everything's fine. I got it under control. You know, stop sweating it. And because... Um, <laughs> God definitely knows. I'll sweat it. If, if, there's a, if there's any, you know, there's an old saying, uh, it goes something like this. My life is full of catastrophes that never happened. But anyway, um, so I'm seeing the 1111. I'm starting to calm down a little bit. And then when I finally said, oh, I'm not going to sleep. Never mind this. So I'll get up and um, <laughs> and just go ahead and start the day, you know, maybe try to take a nap or whatever. And the very first, I kid you not, I, this is how the Lord speaks to me. It's just so awesome. See, it would be one thing if it was like I have to like kind of, you know, try really hard to make the star-shaped peg fit in the round hole. It's another thing if what I'm looking at, what the Lord put in front of me, is just too perfect for words. Okay? That, that's a like ding, 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 ding kind of thing. All right. So anyway, that's what I ended up getting is a ding-ding kind of thing. As a matter of fact, where's, where's my little bell here? It's a little smiley face. It's kind of a cool bell. I like this bell. It's better than the sound effect bell. Here we go. Yeah, there we go. All right. Praise God. So anyway, so I got a little bit of a ding-ding-ding thing. and um, But literally, but see, here's the timing of it. It, it. it wasn't like it was 30 minutes later. It was immediately. So as soon as I got, I just saw the eleven eleven. I looked at the clock. I'm like, man, I, th- there's no point in laying in bed and tossing and turning. By the way, that's one of the things that uh, Dale Carnegie has in his book, How to Stop Worrying and Start Living. He says, look, man, if you're having one of those nights, just get out of bed, pray, do something. <laughs> Don't just roll around in your bed. Because um, actually, there's uh, some sociological common sense to that too. Because you're over time, your brain will start to connect. You're rolling around in bed and not being able to sleep with the fact that you're laying in the bed. So subconsciously, your brain starts to make a negative connection to the bed itself because you're rolling around, rolling around, flopping the pillows, rolling around, going left, going right, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I didn't know that. I was like, oh, hey. So I got out of bed. So this is, you know, 11, 11, 11, 11, got out of bed, went over to my prayer chair. And, you know, it's been chilly, really cold down here in Tampa in the evenings. Anyway, so I, I pull up this, you know, uh, little blanket and everything, and I'm sitting in the chair. And I look at my phone, and the very first thing I see, you know, I have these different scripture verses that come up, uh, whatever. Like there's about six different apps that I have that load up every morning with different things. Some of them are Psalms. Some of them are words of Jesus. Some of them are whatever, you know, a big collect- Proverbs. I like those. But anyway, they're different little apps that are all made by the same company. And um, I look at, you know, and I just, the very first one I hit, I'm going to read it to you. Can I remember you got to put this all together, toss and turn 11-11, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I get out of bed frustratedly, go over to prayer chair, sit down, and the very first thing I press is one of these scripture verses that came up with a note, you know, an, um, notification. And this is what it says. In him my heart trusts. 
Psalm 28, verse 6. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield, and in him my heart trusts. And I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I will give thanks to him. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm telling you, if there's been anybody out there that's been pleading for help, okay, and preaching about, you know, trusting God, okay, you know, and all this stuff, okay, all, you know, it's just perfect. It's absolutely a perfect word at the perfect, you know, millisecond of time uh, in, in the perfect sequence. Uh, and I was like, wow. That's really cool, but um, I know I know me and I know my integrity, you know, to a fault. My, I, you know, inte- I, I, ethical and, and integrity to a fault, really. And I will. It's going to bug, bug me, bug me, bug, 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 bug for the next until this is over. It's going to bug me, and you know what? It'll probably bug me for about three weeks afterwards too, because I'll remember the look on certain people's faces, and I'll feel like I let people down, even though I didn't really. You know what I mean? That's just how I am. I can't help it. Anyway, praise God. I, you know, it, it, it is what it is. The ship is definitely sinking. There's fires everywhere. There's another torpedo heading this way. The sharks are biting above the water. And yeah, yeah. Oh, by the way, this happened to me one other time. About uh, 2001, I think it was. No, maybe the end of 2001, the beginning of 2002. I was w- working with this other company, big, you know, Pretty pretty darn big company. Had three offices, one in Boston, one in Connecticut, slash Manhattan, Connecticut, Connecticut and Manhattan are very, very close together. Lots of people live in Connecticut, and then they ride trains down to get to their jobs in Manhattan, sort of like they do with Staten Island and that. Well, anyway, so um, uh, I was working at this company, which I will leave nameless, um, but it was pretty sizable, about 500 people. And um, and uh, I was at this, you know, a, you know, whatever. I was a, a so-and-so that handled the southeast region. Okay, I'm not going to get into the details. Um, but anyway, and I, I was basically happy. But out of the clear blue sky, I get this phone call from a recruiter. And I mean clear blue sky, folks. Okay, it wasn't like I was getting called or emails or whatever over a period of time or anything like that. It was not like that at all. This was very unusual. Somehow this individual was a lady. I don't remember her name. Uh, maybe Christine or something like that. But she introduces me to herself to me on my cell phone. I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, how'd you even get my cell phone to begin with? But anyway, I'm like, oh hey, yeah, hey, uh, how are you? You know, yes, mm-hmm, you know, platitudes and stuff. And she says. I got this gig that you might be interested in over at XYZ Company, which, by the way, was Fortune 100 at the time, so it was no small potatoes, you know, very large. And um, she said, are you interested? You know, and I said, yeah, why not? So I go and take this big, long, annoying test, uh, you know, it was a big old computer-based CBT type of a test, and uh, just to see if I had the basic IQ, I guess, to be even qualified. You know, it was kind of hard. And then, um, and I passed that. And then, they, anyway, I got the job. Uh, <clears throat> two weeks later, I joke you not. Two weeks later, the company that I left, which by the way, I had some friends working at. You know, of course, I did. Um, went under. 
they pulled the plug on the South Regional Office and then shortly thereafter closed the entire operation. Oh, and they also did that Blue Star Airlines loves Porky Pig or whatever thing that happened in the first uh, uh, Wall Street movie series where they uh, took uh, um, 16,800 shares of Founders stock, which I should be totally retired on right now, went in front of a, a New York judge, which they're all about as crooked as a, a Drano, uh, one of those you know snakes that you put down your drain, and um, and they went and restructured it, which basically means you get you get absolutely nothing. So anyway, um, anyway, there. So you know, but anyway, so um, the ball is rolling. Uh, it's awkward to say the least, especially for somebody like me who pitches and you know rolls around in bed every night you know thinking about oh no you know i'm gonna have to you know this and what about that and what if i forget this i'm gonna forget you know that kind of thing so anyway praise god thank you jesus i just need to give all the glory to god i I have to understand that you know sometimes you know hey look the one thing is for sure that ship is listing. The other thing is for sure, that ship's on fire. The other thing is for sure, there are more torpedoes coming. The other thing is for sure is there are definitely tiger sharks, and they are very hungry, and they're in the water. And there's your analogies, metaphors, whatever you want to call them, to explain the gravity of the situation. Now, do, do, do some of the people that I work with know that that's the direct? Yeah, some of them do. Um, do they see it coming? Yeah. Are, now, are they, you know, see, one of the things that happens is a lot of times people assume because the place that they're at at the moment in a particular company that's going under or changing so dramatically that, you know, it's putting everybody's job at risk. Um, the uh, What happens is you get into your head this idea that there is, the grass isn't greener anywhere, it's just fake, and that you're going to jump, jump from the frying pan into the fire. You know, you hear, you know people. You get feedback from people. They tell you stuff. You know that so-and-so who got a CISO job at XYZ Company just got laid off. You you know what I mean? And so what happens is that gets embedded into your head, and then you're like thinking, oh, my gosh, the whole world's on fire, and I don't – you know, there's no opportunities out there. And, you know, so you tend to hold on to the sinking ship. And I think there's a lot that are holding on to the sinking ship right now based upon the premise. But, see, I'm also a little bit different than a lot of they, them are in the sense that I'm totally humble pie. If you want me to empty your trash – if you're going to pay what I need to do, to support this radio program, uh, to keep this house afloat, I saw an article on Forbes magazine, and it was actually an op-ed. And this guy had wrote, you know, the, the author of the article, you know, he said who he was, he said what he did for a living, he said he was making a solid seventy-seven thousand dollars a year, and he said I do not have enough money to pay my rent or buy groceries and everything else in my car and everything else under the sun, 77K. What a world we've li- we live in right now. Think of all the people that are, you know, below 50. How are they getting through it? You know what I mean? So, um, you know, it's – the world is definitely topsy-turvy. So um, praise God. I don't know what to say. All I can say is maybe Jesus is – Yanking me off the Titanic. <laughs> but anyway, I'm just going to give him all the glory and thank you, Father. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be able to give this testimony in the first place because the situation could be much, much worse. Uh, I just want to thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, 
does this mean I am not throwing out a fleece for prayer? Absolutely not. I will never let the listeners of this program off the hook for prayer. You know why? Because I got scriptures that if you really love the Lord, will make you feel a little guilty if you don't. For example, one of my favorites, praise God, is, um, here, here, here we go, First Samuel twelve twenty three. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. By the way, I, that scripture, you wouldn't believe, because of, of the prayer requests that I've gotten all over the last 12 years and stuff, Man, oh man! I mean, I'll, I'll oh man! I'm like, you know, I'm on my knees and I'm tears in my eyes and I'm praying for so many people. I'm trying to remember everybody, and I'll be like, Father, I know I'm missing people. Please, Holy Spirit, you know, because it's like I, I feel guilty. I feel guilty if I forget. And then sometimes I do remember a little bit later, and then I remember about this, you know, the uh, the uh, white paper. Like I've read, I've done entire shows on it. You know, how Satan stops our prayers, combat in the heavenly realm or spiritual realm, which is more accurate, um, because I know that once you have spent, and when you when you pray through, okay, and you push through in fervent prayer, you create your prayers become fire, and your and it scatters the demons. They're horrified. They can't. They can't. They won't try to hinder your prayers anymore, and you will operate under an open heaven. So when the Lord brings back to my recollection other people that I need to pray for, I'll just stop, drop, and pray. Because I know I'm operating under an open heaven at that point. And if there's ever any doubt in my mind and I need to blow past all the dark demons of darkness in the, in the air that would try to hinder my prayers, and I'm, you know, for whatever reason, if I'm, if I have any question in my mind that um, there, you know, whatever, that I, and I need to get through the throne room immediately, and I know I need to get through to the throne room immediately, it's tongues, man. That's the thing that most, not just most, 99.9999999999999 vinculum percent of Christians, evangelical or whatever you want to call them. They can be any kind of Christian that receives tongues. All right. Don't know this. Matter of fact, my sister got me a book. It says 101 Reason Why You're Supposed to Speak in Tongues. Now, I haven't read the book. I'll admit that. But I guarantee you that in that book is not what the Lord showed me. And that I've given that multiple times in my testimony in regard to the fact that even if you are dripping in sin, it bypasses speaking in tongues, bypasses all of the rules of the Bible, and goes directly from you into the throne room of God. It goes right in, I mean, for immediate answer. It's like the red phone, okay? It's like the red phone, okay? I ain't joking you. Uh, praise God. I wouldn't, you know, and, and I have personal firsthand experience with that red phone working on my behalf in a humongous way. All right. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. That's the only reason that I know that it bypasses everything. It bypasses all the rules. Psalm 66, 18, if I have iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. I could go on and on. Uh, the point I'm trying to make here is speaking in tongues is a much more powerful, awesome, truly cool, super awesome gift that most people who have it don't even realize what it's capable of doing. While they're sitting there doing their mamby-pamby prayers that will never catch fire, that will never melt the firmament of the rock, that will never scatter the demons, and never make it into the throne room to begin with. But they don't know any better. And that's, you know, kind of a sad thing. I, you know, so anyway, um, 
Anyway, on that note, praise God, thank you, Jesus. Uh, let's go ahead and see if the kids want to do a couple of jokes. And i got to watch the time here because Gary is an on-time kind of guy, and I love that. Um, praise Jesus. So let's, the kids, are you, you ready for a couple of, you are? Oh, and by the way, my, my prayer right now is, if you would kindly, just pray for a smooth transition that everything will go well. And there won't be any bumps. Everything will go great. And, you know, I just need everything to go smooth. I don't want people to freak out. I don't want to be, like, held down to the ground by human resources people trying to beat out of my mouth the name or where I'm going because I ain't telling them. And I can't lie. So I'm going to be kind of like Jesus at the Sanhedrin when he would, like, clam up. And I can't even do that the military thing. I can neither confirm nor deny I can't even do that. The only thing I can say is uh, this is not something that I'm able to talk about. Sorry. And leave it at that because I am not going to bring World War III along with me. They can all bark up a tree. All right. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. So anyway, on that note, come on, kids. Let's get with the program. Get with the program. Hey, this is a program. It's a radio program. Somebody's talking on the radio program. Who is that weird guy? I don't know. And why does he have a little smiley-faced bell in his hands? I don't know. He's kind of a weirdo. All right, kids, you ready? Here we go. No, oh, i got to keep on scrolling. Okay, kids, do dads always snore? Do dads always snore? Think hard, kids. Come on. I see some scribbling over there on a pad. They're looking at each other. All right. The answer is no, only when they're asleep. <laughs> right, kids? They don't snore when they're at dinner table, are they? You know, they're. Okay. All right. I'll take that one. I'll take that one. I got a rough couple of weeks ahead of me. If I had no ethics at all, it wouldn't be a problem at all. All right. Praise God. When does a joke, kids? Become a dad joke. When does a joke become a dad joke? When the punchline is apparent. Get it? Apparent? Right? Come on. Oh, okay. Little smarty pants kids here. You guys got a pretty good vocabulary. Kid, what kids, what sound does a nut make when it sneezes? Think hard. Cashew. I like cashews, by the way. Kids, do you like cashews? Kids, come on. Yeah, you do. We all like cashews. They're not even nuts. Did you know that? I don't know what they are. I forget what they say they are. They're like these little beads that hang on the roots of something that grow underground, but they're not really officially nuts. Did you know that? Cashews? Yeah, no. I don't know what they I don't know what they are officially referred to as. Um I de- I know they're definitely not key lime pie. That's for sure. Right kids, they're definitely not key lime pie. Okay. All right. All right. Praise God. Thank you Jesus. And on that note, let's go into the news. Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? It's not normal. It's just wrong. Game over. 
All right, praise God. Now, this guy's name is Chris Skye. You may have heard him uh, out on social media before they started taking this stuff down faster than you could even click the mouse. Um, and it was pretty popular for a while. But it was uh, people did not realize when he was ranting how prophetic what he was saying actually was. And by the way, this goes all the way back to like May of 2020. How about that? All right. And you're saying, well, come on, Johnny. I haven't even heard it yet. How do I know if I agree with it or whatever? All right. So I'm watching the little thing. I'm trying to bring it up. Here we go. All right. Listen to this. And that's just about compliance because they know Canadians like to do what they're told. So if they tell you you have to wear a mask, next they're going to tell you you have to contact trace. Then they're going to tell you you have to take the vaccine. And because Canadians like to do what they're told, they're hoping that everyone just complies. And then guess what, kids? Once you take your vaccine, like a dumb person that doesn't know any better, they're going to tell you a story. The vaccine isn't as effective as we thought it was going to be. So now you still got to wear your mask, still got to get contact trace, still have all the restrictions and social distancing, and still take your vaccine. And then what did you get out of all of this? You got a whole year where you weren't allowed to travel. Your business was closed. They took your rights and freedoms. They forced the vaccine on you. And what happened? The same amount of people died. Everything is the exact same. And now they're going to put you back on lockdown and bring it all the way till July of next year so they can do the same thing again. Bring you from July, August, and September, getting you off lockdown, but just to bring you back on lockdown again. If you idiots haven't figured it out yet, it's a perpetual cycle that you never get out of. And it's a way to take your rights, your freedoms, close your business, take your wealth. Why? So you become dependent on government. Why? If you're independent, the government works for you like it's supposed to. If you depend on the government to give you a paycheck to feed your family every month because they closed your business on you, now the government doesn't work for you. The government rules you. So instead of a middle class, we have the government, upper class, and the lower class dependents that rely on the government to survive. In other words, we have a slave class, and that's what they're trying to do. It's that simple. Wow. Now, 2020, May of 2020, that was really prophetic. And you, you, you may be one of those out there who's saying, well, you know, you know uh, Biden is going to take away all COVID restrictions and shut down the, uh, the American national emergency, blah, 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 on May 21st. And then a lot of people are, interestingly, the wiser ones, the ones who are wise as serpents. They may not, may, may not be Christians, but they're definitely wise as servants. They say things like, I see this on my little finely tuned Twitter feed, things like, why May 21st? You know what I mean? So that is a, that's the kind of question that you want to be asking. That's, that's part of critical thinking. So anyway, um, yeah, it's a great question. Why May 21st? And is, is it valid? What's going to happen before then? Yeah, so anyway, it is fascinating. Now, if you're one of those people who you know doesn't like Donald Trump or whatever the case, you've got to remember the 33, and I know there are some more levels. I'm just using this as a metaphor to make a point. 33 levels of masonry, right? All right, now, 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 what did the blue levels do? You know, well, what do they do? They go over, they wear a fez, they look ridiculous, they go over there in groups, you know, overweight, middle-aged men with nothing better to do. On a Saturday night, they say Maha Bone, which is their secret code word to get inside. They knock on the door, they go in and eat chicken wings and watch porn movies. 
And that's the extent of their Masonic experience until the day they die, because they are not ever invited to go to the higher levels. Now, when you understand these various levels and you wonder to yourself, well, what about a 25th level? What does a 25th level know? Not a lot, but a lot more than the blue levels that are eating the chicken wings. So when you're able to grasp that concept, we don't really know what we're dealing with with Trump, except that comparatively, relatively speaking, compared to the slithering uh, snake viper-eyed reptilians that are you know, all around, he is um, night and day. Totally night and day. As a matter of fact, uh, I was really surprised to see this, but this is actually a conversation that was recorded while Trump was still in office, having a conversation directly with, guess who, Mr. Zelensky, long before there was any type of special operation, okay? So this is Trump talking to the Zelensky. Let's listen to what he says. Very eye-opening in my opinion. Here we go. I really believe that President Putin would like to do something. I really hope that you and President Putin get together and can solve your problem. That would be a tremendous achievement. Because I really believe that President Putin would like to do something. I really hope that you and President Putin get together and can solve your problem. That would be a tremendous achievement. Now, Zelensky is sitting across from this vase of carnations between them on a little table, and he's leaning... He's looking, the look on his face is like, not only is that never going to happen, but you have no idea what we got queued up for the future when we get you out of here. It's almost like he knew what was coming and that the words that Trump was saying were more of like, you know, somebody throwing uh, some Labrador on his lap. You know, he just had a scrunchy looking, annoyed look on his face. Uh, now, it, maybe it was just because he was a Nazi. Maybe it was because he's, you know, all that hate Russia kind of thing. Who knows? Don't know. But I'll tell you what, I'm going to play another clip for you here. And this one is going to be troubling. I don't like this. I don't like it. I don't like it. But I also know that for those of us who reside with our Heavenly Father in the secret place of the Most High, we invest time. We, have, we take away peace that is invaluable. We trust God with all of our heart. We're imperfect. We confess all the time. We repent. We work on stuff. We ask God for help. We ask Jesus for help. It is part of the walk. I could be wrong, but I think I feel pretty passionately that those of us who are in that place don't have anything to worry about. In fact, I believe before they get to this place that you're about to hear, that the first watch will be gone. I would like to believe that with all of my heart. Because um, anyway, so I'm just going to play this for you. And yes, it's pretty creepy and. Anyway, so we'll see. All right, this is Laura Ingram back on a program now that she's gotten better-ish from whatever it was that happened to her. And here we go. So let me double-click this and get it up. And kind of creepy. Here we go. And AIDS was raging. Little did the American public know at the time that the CDC was holding a meeting discussing the potential to track those who were unvaccinated. Well, the proposal was documented on page 194 of the CDC September meeting packet, but until now, we'd never heard the plan on tape. 
Well, meet a little-known figure, CDC Dr. David Berglund. There has been interest expressed in being able to track people who are not immunized or who are only partially immunized. And at the current time, there can be considered to be a significant modifiable risk factor for morbidity and for mortality, and it can be of interest for clinical reasons as well as being of value for public health reasons to be able to track this. Uh, NCHS is therefore proposing creation of codes related to uh, people being unvaccinated for COVID-19 and for being partially vaccinated for COVID-19. So it's not just a tracking of the unvaccinated, which is ridiculous. If you thought getting one or even two shots was going to shield you from being surveilled or tracked, medical big brother looking over your shoulder, you were wrong. Because after the presentation, Dr. David Berglund opened the floor to questions and comments. He was asked if those who had previously had COVID and therefore are rejecting the vaccine, whether they could avoid the unvaccinated code they were assigned. Listen to his response. At this point, it has been recommended that even if someone has a history of COVID-19, that it may be beneficial for them to get the vaccine um, so at this point in time, I would not um, disallow use of these codes, even if someone had that history, we could use these codes together with the history of code uh, if someone wished to be unvaccinated. All right, let's cut to the chase. So bottom line, if they, if they pull this off and they do successfully implement this, and that usually these things are implemented clandestinely, you know, they vote for it at like 11 p.m. on a Friday night while everybody's out doing whatever they do at Applebee's or whatever. I'm not picking on Applebee's. I actually like that place. But anyway, here's the deal. They sneak it through somehow and or they'll get it ratified through a treaty, which, of course, the American public doesn't get to vote on. And bottom line is what, what they would what they would do, you know, when you get past all the lip flapping, lying, whatever. Um, the reality is they would put together a schedule and people would have to adhere to the schedule and you would have to get boosters continuously. And if something else came out, another permutation, they wanted to give you something more evil, more sinister, more deadly than the one that they're already pushing out on people. And the bottom line is if, you, if you're not on that schedule, you would get dinged. You'd go to the airport or whatever the case is, and they would see the little colored mark, you know, hologram mark on your driver's license wasn't the right color. And, well, sorry, you can go home now. All right. So anyway, praise God. Thank you, Jesus. We're running real close to bringing on Brother Gary. So let's go ahead and, uh, oh, uh, I'm looking at some of these. Okay, here, hold on a second. There we go. Okay, so let's go ahead and move through the rest of these uh, headlines. All right, orange balls in the sky, February 1st, 2023, UFO sighting in Mesa. Now, normally I don't comment on these because there's so doggone many of them. You ought to see these, folks. <laughs> so um, these, you know, common everyday UFO floating, you know, orb of light in the sky type of deal. Uh, no, no. No. A lot of the stuff that's coming out as of late is really, really in your face. And it's much more dazzling and freaky than any little, you know, 
yellowish, whitish colored orb floating around and making strange, you know, zigzag things in the air. All right. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. All right. Next one up here. Wait a minute. Let me let me just look at this. Okay. Praise God. Here we go. uh, Intel Republic reports Israel has the military capability to unilaterally that is, without the help of the U.S., attack Iran's nuclear facilities, according to Israeli's ex-Prime Minister Bennett. Um, Actually, for those of us who know better... You're good. (laughs) Thanks, Captain Obvious. I was on a totally different track. All right, praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Matter of fact, uh, Israel unilaterally, meaning on their own, without any cooperation from those whom they were cooperating with, it released uh, Olympic Games, which was the name of the um, hack that they later gave the nickname Stuxnet. Um, they were in cooperation with, you know, all kinds of three-letter agencies, you know, as a co-op, a co-op, and they're all working together on this code, which was ingenious. It was absolutely ingenious. Um, but Israel got impatient, you know, and they grabbed the code and said, you know what, we're not waiting for any more coding. We're just going to release it. And so instead of being released on just the Fort Al facility, which was the original plan, uh, it spread across the world in lightning speed. Fortunately, it was written well enough not to hurt anything. It was just flying around out there. And then all of the uh, code scientists and you know code breakers and stuff got a hold of it and said, wow, what is this? We've never seen anything like this. Um, I find it interesting that the two Symantec uh, specialists uh, that reverse engineered it and knew the most about it, uh, that Symantec was brought, bought by Broadcom not too long after that. Makes me almost think hush money kind of a thing. All right, praise God. Next headline up. Zero Hedge. White House refuses to say if they're going to use or give Ukraine depleted uranium ammunition. It goes right through tank armor like butter, but it also lays in the ground and causes your children to have three-headed babies. But anyway, next one up. United, you, uh, this, again, is from The Sun, Invasion 2.0. Mo, uh, Putin is currently mobilizing 200,000 troops for a new invasion. I'm here to tell you that number is up now, and we're at 300,000 and climbing. And by the way, Bakhmut is completely surrounded on my last report. Uh, will that change before the end of the show? Could be. I don't know. All right, but, uh, yeah. There, and this isn't even the big offensive right now, all right? Praise God. Next one up. The Independent Report, strike action, every industrial walkout affecting the United Kingdom in February. And I've been talking to some people off and on here and there in the United Kingdom. And boy, oh boy, are things getting tough over there and a lot of places in Europe. So all the stuff they warned us about, it's it's work in progress. All right, next one up. Hallelujah. All right, tech, uh, I'm sorry, Tehran warns uh, any United States military action against Iran will be a... Declaration of War. Who's this being reported by? Sputnik News out of uh, Russia. Who's given uh, Russia one of their favorite weapons? Lots of them. Kamikaze drones. Iran. Would it be an act of war? You bet your sweet bivy it would. To uh, the Russian Federation. All right, praise God. Next one up. 
The market is heading for a tinderbox time bomb that will be worse than 1929 crash, Black Swan Fund Manager says. Okay, so again, every week or every three days or so, we have another well-known expert in the financial industry warning, hey, two quadrillion dollars worth of derivatives are out there, you guys. This cannot sustain. Uh, (laughs) This is going to make what's-his-name Schmidabook book look like he missed the mark by, like, 10 years. (laughs) Anyway, but that's all right. All right, praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Next one up. All right, uh, from Charisma News, spirit-filled Christian detained in a psych ward for her testimony. Whoa. Let, let, me, let me read this to you. So when an award-winning principal who shares publicly how the Holy Spirit has filled her heart and she received the gift of tongues, whoa, she actually said that publicly? Oh, you can't say that publicly. Oh, my gosh, MacArthur is going to come after you. Oh, there's a whole group of Christians out there. That they're called cessationists, and that's about as close as I can think of to blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They're basically saying it doesn't exist today. But anyway, so she they put her in a psych ward. Can you believe this? Colony High School in Palmer, Alaska. Oh, wonderful, weird world we live in. Praise God. Next one up. Okay, Hunter, Hunter Biden's Metabio, Metabiota Labs received tens of millions of dollars in DOD contracts and experimented with bat viruses in at least one of them. A lot worse, folks. You should have listened to what the um, Ministry of Defense from Russia said when they commandeered some of the labs and found what was inside of them. But, of course, nobody pays attention. Another headline, Russian official says, effort to reclaim Crimea will trigger nuclear response. Hey, now that's outside of the normal nuclear doctrine of Russia. So they've kind of seen, basically, if you don't threaten them with nukes, or they don't perceive it as a possible nuclear threat, their nuclear doctrine states that they will not respond with a nuclear threat. However, they have made a new role. Mess with Crimea, get a nuke. To actually have that come out from Russia is astonishing because it completely, I mean, it turns their published nuclear doctrine upside down. Wow. Praise God. Uh, The United States is uh, another headline here. Preparing $2 billion to send to Ukraine a weapons package, including, listen to this, longer range rockets. But of course, the people in the Ukraine said, oh, well, we would never fire them into Russian territory. So, and, you know, they, they may not, you know, because by now, if they don't realize that Russia has enough missile power to level that entire country in about 20 minutes, they've got a brain the size of a quark. I think I was being generous. Next one up. Pentagon and city officials deny that there was an explosion in the sky above Billings, Mon- Billings Montana, where the Chinese spy balloon was spotted infiltrating U.S. airspace. Um... No, there was. There was an explosion in the sky. Yes, you know, the shape-shifting reptilian it refers to itself as Biden, under the instruction of Obama and the WEF, did let it go ahead and take all of its footage and stuff. You know, all of our military bases, all of our FEMA camps, all that kind of stuff. Um, 
you know, and that, oh, by the way, we'll shoot it down over the water because we don't want anything bad to fall on anybody, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, right. All right. And then China, of course, you know, they got to play the game. You know, it's all the world's a stage. Well, we reserve the right to take further actions against you bad United Statesians. <laughs> like, what, what is this, Broadway? All right, next one up. Okay. Uh, and then, of course, I got a video here from the lady in Billings, Montana, who saw whatever it was, a blue out of the sky, which in this case, it wasn't the balloon. It was something else. And they got a big, gigantic smoke trail as it's falling to the ground. What I want to know is what was it they shot out of the sky? Hmm. Those are usually the when you when you see fireballs falling from the sky and they have like three or four tails coming on off the back of them. That isn't a comet. That is not a fireball. That is a spaceship that has been shot down. Okay, sorry, but that's what it is. There are wars in heaven, and they are happening to some extent anyway. Right now, I have the video to prove it. All right. Anyway, praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Next one up. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Oh, 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 oh. I got to play this for you. I got to play this for you. And then we're going to bring it on Gary. All right, listen to this. Tucker Carlson, hold on a second. Hates it. Okay, so Tucker Carlson, I got to give you the background on this. So Carlson is live on his program while the explosion in Billings, Montana in the sky is taking place. Okay, and guess what? He coincidentally is live on his show on Fox with Gasoo. The governor of Billings, Montana. It doesn't get any better than this, folks. Don't tell me God isn't trying to wake people up. Anyway, so let's go ahead and listen to this. This is live. I mean, well, it's recorded of a live show. Here we go. Um, governor, I hate to pull random video off the Internet and ask you to respond to it, but this is going around. It appears to be, it's on social media, video of an explosion over your state showing what looks like a smoke trail into the sky. We can't even guess as to what this is. Do you have any information about this? Not at this point. I was notified of it just minutes before we came on the air. Uh, we're monitoring the situation. I'm talking to our uh, National Guard to find out if they have additional information. I'm sure I'll be briefed here in the next hour. Last question. Um, Governor, I hate... Anyway, praise God. Thank you, Jesus. On that note, we ran too, uh, too far over time. Uh, you know, we... we, we uh, but, uh, anyway, it's, it's hard, folks. It's hard. I mean, there's so much apocalyptic news, and I could sit here and report, this, report all of this verbally to you, but when you're hearing the testimonies coming out of the mouths of other people, particularly those that are well-known, uh, representatives... Uh, oh, and by the way, by the way, just for the record... The governor of Montana has denied any explosion since then. Since he was on Tucker Carlson, he has since denied it now. Oh, no, 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 no. There's nothing to see here. No, no, no. Why? why? You think you think maybe he got a call? This is Klaus Schwab, and uh, we, we do not want you to say anything about the spaceship we blew up out of the sky. Oh, okay, no problem. Please don't kill my children. We won't, as long as you keep your mouth shut. You think I'm kidding? I'm not. All right, let's go ahead and bring on Gary Wayne. Praise God. Brother Gary, are you there? 
I am, and uh, what a wonderful set of headlines, as usual. It just keeps coming. It just doesn't stop, does it? No, it doesn't. It doesn't, and you can't... You can't keep up with it, but that's all right. That's that's a good sign. No, I get emails from people all over the world, and they're all going like, it's going to blow any second. The rapture's going to be tomorrow. We're going to go. We're going to leave any second now. We're going to go. It's, it's going to blow. Nothing. Ah, ah. You know, their hair's on fire, and they're running around, bouncing off the walls, and I'm like, yeah. no, 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 man. You need to chill. You need to chill out. We got yeah. a bumpy road ahead of us. Yeah. We um, do. We can't get ahead of chronology because then it'll discredit things. So we're still we're still in the birth pangs and they're getting stronger, but we're not we're not in the seal judgments yet. So uh, hang on because it's going to get really crazy, like you say. Yeah. Amen. So tonight and, and we're going to be talking. It is. It's total- yep. Go ahead. Go ahead. Take yep. over. Yeah. So tonight we're going to talk about the Avite. This chapter. 38 in my book and people may not be all that familiar with the people called the Avites but um, they're very very important to what's going on in the time of King Saul and King David and before during the time of the Exodus and in my new book I'll talk a lot more about not only the Avites and really break down some more of the giant nations and also in deep go in detail of the uh, giant wars that happened right through the time of King David. And the Avites are kind of intermixed into the time of King David taking over as king and part of his covenant obligations is to continue to drive the nations out of the covenant land and the uh, going to war edict in, in the um, driving out the nations edict and the kings were instructed to review the covenant every day to remind them what their obligations were and so King Saul had failed to meet up to the very very high standard that was going to be required but David was selected at a very young age as being after God's heart and uh, eventually comes to power and he's going to have to fulfill the obligations of the covenant, which he does. And when we talk about the Philistine wars, there are several Philistine wars. And if we're going to understand who the Avites are, if we're going to understand who the Philistines are, um, and if we're going to understand the Anakim, the Anakites, then we need to sort of understand what that Pentapolis military state of the Philistines was all about. And it sort of comes together in the story of the Avites that I put out in chapter 38 and the hunting down of the balance of the major, sort of, I guess, the the more predominant giants that were still amongst the Philistines. Not that all of them would have been wiped out at that time, but just from a Philistine perspective during all of the wars. And, you know, as we covered in the David chapter, David had taken out Goliath uh, while Saul was still king. And uh, after that, Israel won a great battle against the Philistines, but it wasn't over. And in fact, it's the Philistines who defeats King Saul for not fulfilling the obligation to completely and utterly destroy the Amalekites. And so in that story, we talked about David selecting five smooth stones because it represented five kings of the five city pentapolis 
city-states, fortress city-states of the military complex. So it was described in the book of Samuel as a mice network, a web of cities and villages all interconnected in a massive military complex built for war, offensive, and defensive. And this is uh, who King Saul and then King David were, were going up against. And so we're going to talk about who these peoples are as we cover off the taking down of those other four major giants and how they relate into the larger mosaic of the Philistine military complex. So I open the chapter 38 with a quote that comes out of 2 Samuel 5, 1 through 3, and I'll just read it. Uh, it's a little bit of a bridge. Um, in other words, there's a little bit missing in the middle, but it doesn't take away from the point I'm trying to make with the introduction to the chapter. And it says, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood. So this is after about seven years of David ruling the southern kingdom and the problems that happen with the choice of Israel and Northern Kingdom and choosing another leader. And now it's time uh, for them to come back and they're going to be one kingdom under King David uh, that would pass on to Solomon and then it'll break up into the two kingdoms again. And so when all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a compact with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. So seven years before, David had already been anointed by the southern kingdom of Judah at Hebron as well. And this should not be overlooked. Hebron is a latter name to the city that David was crowned at. And we know it as Hebron. Today we don't know what we don't really refer to it a lot as the city that it was known in the time of David and before. And so this was a place called Kiriath Arba. And uh, it's called the city of Arba because Kiriath means city in Hebrew and Arba is the patriarch of the Anakim, not listed in the table of nations. and But the patriarch and the greatest of the Anakim, and we get these details then about the city of Arba and uh, who Arba was in Joshua 21, 11, 14, 15, and 15, 13, if people wanted to look at it. And he's the greatest man, and he's the father, patriarch of the Anakim, but he's not in, in the table of nations because he's a Raphaim. And just as Rapha of the Raphaim is not in the table of nations, neither is Arba nor any of the other patriarchs that would have created the patriarchless nations of the nine tribes of Canaan that aren't named and any other Raphaim nations like the Emim and the Zamzuzim and the Anakim whom the Israelites compared to the Nephilim in the embellished part of the report numbers 1333 where the Anakim are giants that's the Hebrew word Nephil that's the embellished part it's not that the Anakim weren't giants because they're clearly labeled in Deuteronomy 2 as giants, but goes back to the Hebrew word Rapha and Raphaim for the male plural for post-Diluvian giants. So they were big, they were terrible, uh, 
giants of war, kings, powerful people, as were the Avim, who are also described in Deuteronomy 2.23 as the Avim from the Hazarim to uh, to Abba. And so we have these giants that are listed in not only Gaza, but in the Palestine and in, in other cities, and it overlaps into the Philistine Empire and into the wars uh, against uh, King David and, and King Saul. So it's very interesting as we start to look at the size of, I guess, the collective nature of these nations and people that, that David is, is up against. But that's his, that's his role. That's what he's been selected to do. And, and God's going to be with him, just as he was in the time of the slaying of Goliath. And the Anakim are a blonde-haired race, and blue eyes they're thought to have had and pale white skin, just as the Amorites were blonde hair and blue eyes. And... The Horim, who were also part of the giant wars that I cover off in in my book that will be out soon, um, were a red-haired variety and more in the Seir and Edom area and kind of part of the Southern Alliance, as I would like to, uh, to, to call them. And so David's going to be warring with the complete Southern Alliance and the Eastern Alliance of what's, what's left of it with the Horim and the Hurim that are in the Syria region as well. But that's not for, for tonight's discussion. We're talking about the Avites and the Philistines tonight and David and his mighty men who were selected to take on these powerful nations that were completely bolstered in ways and numbers that we, we, we might struggle to imagine today and hybrids within their armies. And so it's important that we understand the context and sort of the overall meaning to the story and what they were doing. And I'll come back to that in, in, in my closing comments, but details are important in the Bible and so many things are defining what's going to be happening in the end time. So it's important to understand these details. And at that time, as that David is coming to power, there's the uh, record recorded in the Armana letters about a strong man um, in southern part of uh, the Apiru or the Ha Apiru. If you hear Apiru, A-P-I-R-U, and you hear Habiru, H-A-B-I-R-U, understand that the, as in Ha, as in Ha-Satan, or Ha-Elohim, as the, the God, the God Most High. Um, that's the transliteration of people being described in that area that were rising to power, and there's a record in the Armana letters of a strong man who is starting a rebellion against the peoples of the of that region. And this is the one, the strong man, who takes Jerusalem. And so that's kind of a secular accounting of David rising to power. So we just need to look for the evidence in, in, in other uh, cultures that helps us understand better what's going on in the time of, of uh, David. And so David is crowned in Hebron twice. 
in Kiriath Arba, the city of the giants, the capital city of the Anakim. And he's it's sending a message to the Rephaim order of that time that David is crowning the king in one of your royal cities, and he's sending you a message that he is going to complete the obligations of the covenant. And so when we look at the Philistine of Pentapolis, um, you have five major cities that are located within the Pentapolis. And you have Gath, who uh, Goliath was from, and then Ashish will become king after Goliath. And Ashish is the king that offers David protection while he's fleeing from Saul because Saul doesn't want David to take his throne or his dynasty from his from his children. And I think Ashish is kind of thinking, you know, David killed Goliath, that's how I became king, and so as long as I've got him close and he's working for me and he's loyal, I, I'm going to protect him. And David comes back after Saul loses the war to the Philistines when David is sent away by the Philistines because they do not want him to participate in that battle. And then David goes right to Jerusalem or right to Hebron to be crowned after Saul has been uh, killed by the Philistines. So you have Gath, that's that's one of the cities. You have um, <clears throat> you have. Uh, Gaza or Aza, which is another one of the cities. You have Ekron, which is another one of the cities. And you have Ashad, that is another one of the cities. And it's important to keep keep these cities kind of straight because Gaza is part of the Philistine Empire, but... It is run by the Avim within the Philistine Empire. And just as uh, the Avim were also thought to to have um, small villages within that complex that, that we talked about. So you have a mixture of Philistines and you have a mixture of the Avim. And then you also have the Anakim that um, are possessing Gath and a shot and there's a thought that actually between the Avim and the Anakim is they controlled four of the five cities and the Philistines only controlled one but it's the Philistines who conquered that so they formed this alliance afterwards and so to kind of understand who this multiple mosaic of giant nations are in Philistines, we need to understand a little bit more who, who the Philistines are. And so the Philistines are a nation that uh, show up just before the Exodus. So if we put a timetable of about 1450 for the Exodus, the Philistines arrive in the covenant land. Actually, it's more of a return, and I'll come back to that. They show up in about somewhere before 1550, and likely at the destruction of Santorini and the destruction of the islands of uh, Crete. And the Philistines are made up of a group of people that are leaving those islands uh, with them because of the, the natural disaster. And 
they come out of the Minoan culture, and it's important to sort of understand the Minoan culture uh, in how this mix in terms of the geopolitical network as well. And, and again, I'll, I'll be touching on that in a couple of minutes. Biblically, we know the people that are coming with the Philistines from the Kaphtarim, from include the Kajalim and the Cherethim and the Pelethim. And these are all giants of the Indo-Aryan race. These are dark-haired variety of the giants. They're like Gilgamesh. They are like the... Uh, the, the branch that is settles in Persia that produces the Persian kings, and they're like the the ones that settle in the Indus Valley. They're a specific strain, other you know, separate, related but separate from the blonde-haired giants and the red-haired giants. And these are the people that are all coming with the Philistines that become the lords of the Philistines and they accept the Anakim kings and they accept the Avim kings as well. When I say Avim and Anakim, that's the Anakites and the Avites. I put an I-M on for the uh, giant nations. And so the Philistines are very interesting people and they are not created as a giant nation. You know, they're from from the descendants of Ham, and they end up moving to, uh, migrating to Egypt at some time. Um, and then they end up migrating up into to the Crete area after that. And it's this sort of intermixing of the Philistines with a, a number of other peoples that sort of brings them into an understanding as being sort of a hybrid people, but also very, very powerful people. And the Philistines are retaking the area that they originally migrated from. In fact, we have Philistines in that region from the time of Abraham. And one presumes from before that. And one presumes that the Philistines would have been intermixing at that time, probably with the Anakim and the Avim, both who are aboriginal nations along with the Horine to that southern part of the covenant land but yet they leave and we know that they're there before because Abraham is dealing with a fellow by the name of Abimelech of Gerar and so this is a Philistine um, <clears throat> that's intermixing with with Abraham and associating with, with Abraham at that time and we get accounts of it in Genesis 21 and then we also get another Abbey Malak, which is either the same one or a son or a patronymically named title, just as David is thought to be a patronymic title as well uh, for, for the, at least in some circles, as being a title of the king of Jerusalem. And, like, and some people would call it the David Dumb, although it's not widely used today, but it is in, still in some circles who people who claim bloodline, uh, inheritance by divine right of rule of an inheritance to the D Davidum title, but that's that's a little bit of a different rabbit hole. But in the time of Isaac, you have Abimelech, uh, the king of Shechem, who's a Hivim, another kind of giant that's closely associated with either the Avim or the Horim or both, but distinct, and they're located in a few different areas, mostly in the central and in the north, but 
Um, you have, again, this, this patronymic title that's coming down through these giant nations that Israel and Abraham and his descendants are all sort of living on. And what's interesting about that name, Abi Melech, of the patronymic title is it is in Psalms 34.1, a, a title that Ashish accepts as well as the king of Gath. And so this is a patronymic title that is being passed down through the ages, through the generations in, in the Middle East. And there's a, a number of them like Hadad and many, many more that I won't, won't go into tonight. But just to give you an idea that Bible is not in contradiction with its dating or anything. We just need to understand the details of prehistory and how people moved and how they came back. And in about 1550, the Philistines came back and as we're told in Deuteronomy 2, they're going to push the Abim and the Anakim out of most of their lands, but they're going to come to an arrangement with them to create the greater Philistine Confederacy and form into a very powerful set of military states. And so this is the, this is the political scenario that David is looking at as he's going to war and absolutely subdue uh, the Philistines and actually will capture Gath City by the time that he's done and keep it as part of his uh, plunder for, for defeating uh, the Philistines. It takes several wars or several battles to do that. And understand also the Philistine link into the Egyptian period and with another group called the Hyksos. And of course the Hyksos are dark haired uh, depicted kings and they come from the northern part of the Covenant land from the Syria region as well and intermixed with the Hurrians and several other Indo-Aryan races. And a people called the Amau, A-A-M-A-U in, in secular records that were considered the greater uh, greater Hyksos and uh, there's a lower Hyksos or they might be called the Amau and the Shamau and, and other secular records. But just so you understand there's a division of the, of the giants and then the hybrids is basically what they're getting at. And the Hyksos, they overthrow the Egyptian empire in about the 1700s. Um, and they actually don't even have to go to war to do it. They just kind of show up into a city and use a city called Avarice, which is a city of the Shamau, of the Anakim, and of the Hyksos. Uh, and they show up with their advanced military weaponry, and the pharaohs hand their power over to them for several, uh, several generations, including part of the time that Israel is in Egypt before the Exodus. And that's the time, I think, when it goes from the time of Joseph and Israel being welcome to the change in kingship and then putting Israel into servitude because these are people that are allied with the Amalekites who want Israel wiped from the face of the earth. So, again, it's important to understand this. But the weaponry that they bring is not just their technology and expertise in horsemanship and not just their expertise in chariots because that's kind of part of the military mosaic of that time of the super weapons but what the hyksos do is is they bring their technology of iron to play and they have 
iron swords and they have iron bolted chariots, which are stronger and weaponry attached to the chariots, like, you know, uh, sharp edges and things when they're going through the ranks or, you know, they're, they're able to slaughter uh, people just by riding through them. Um, and most people don't think iron is part of that period of time, that iron comes around later. But that's not exactly true biblically. Biblically, we're told in Judges 1 and 4 that they controlled, the Philistines controlled the iron technology, and they wouldn't permit Israel to do blacksmithing and making tools because they didn't want them to get a hold of iron and to make weapons of iron to fight against them. And also in those passages, the Philistines have iron chariots. So biblically, we get that. And that's not inaccurate. It is very, very, very accurate. So when we look at kind of like the history of of iron, um, we need to understand that you have uh, iron being recorded in um, parts of secular archaeology archaeology that they that they like to ignore of to about uh, you know 3100 BC where iron was available there and they were making weapons out of iron so they had the technology to make it before the flood this is the technology that the giants are going to reproduce again after the flood and the Minoans were very very um well advanced in this and they're the ones and when you look at the secular sort of even though they've got the dating wrong even though you've got the secular uh understanding of the Minoans were the ones who thought to have exported the iron into the hittite empire and into the middle east they just have the dating wrong and it happens they've got it even before 1550 because this is part of the weaponry that is going to help them take over uh sections of the middle east and it's also in the time of the hyksos in in the in between 17 and 1800 bc that they're they're going to overrun um egypt with uh, with that technology and you also have uh some archaeology relics that shows iron weaponry that's dated to about 2700 bc so there's a strong sort of tradition, even though it doesn't really fit into the standard kind of uh, chronology for uh, the seculars. It just doesn't fit. So they tend to say, let's set that aside with all sorts of other, what they call uparts, uh, out of out of place uh, artifacts, and because they just can't sort of deal with it. And it's a contradiction to, to their timeline. So it's got to be sort of dismissed. So this is the military complex that Israel is going up against, not only nations of hybrids with the Philistines, but several nations of giants, of whatever size and population that they are of that time. And they're going up with them uh, when they're being having an embargo continuously wait over them not to to supply the iron and not to allow them to doing blacksmithing as much as possible to make those kinds of weapons. And yet David 
just as in the time of the Exodus with Joshua and Moses, they're going up against these very powerful nations with this type of of iron-based military technology. And so when we start to look at the Avim as being a significant part of the Philistine Confederacy, we need to also look at the understanding that the giants that are going to be named in the wars that David is fighting, most of the giant names are going to be part of the, the Raphaim, which include the Avim, which, and which includes the uh, Hivim, and it includes the Horim, and it includes the Anakim, and specifically the Anakim and the uh, Avim as it comes to the, to the Philistines as being the most powerful ones. And so we get four giants that are left for, for David and his mighty men to, to, to deal with. And uh, we get told that these, uh, these additional giants that are being hunted down, they are from the children of the giant or born of the giant. And those phrases that are coming out of Second Samuel 21 and First Chronicles 20, children mean, you know, that's Ben, that means son. So you'll see children, sons, it's the same Hebrew word for the different verses that they're talking about. And they're born of a giant, of a specific giant. And that's the Hebrew word Rapha, from Raphaim. So Raphaim is thought, in that application, it could be the name of the father, which Josephus calls Araf, which is very, very similar, um, and kind of like just a transliteration of Rapha. And, or it could be representing a race of giants, or it could be representing both. And it's probably representing both there, because this is many generations after King Og, who's a Raphaim. And for people who are saying, well, where does it actually say Rephaim in the King James Version Bible? Genesis 14 in the War of Giants. Uh, it's the Raphaim of the Mount Hermon region. And then in Genesis 15 in the Mighty Ten in the land that is dwelling in the land promised to Abraham, the Raphaim are listed as well. So we, we get that both translated. The rest of the time that Rapha is used, uh, it's like 25 times in the Old Testament. It'll generally just be translated as as uh, as giant. And so each of these four are the children of that giant, just as Goliath is going to come from that giant. And we know that because one of the uh, giants that are going to be killed is Lami. And Lami is called the brother of Goliath. And he's killed by Elahan, Elhanan. And there's and David Roll and some other people, and I don't necessarily disagree with this, say that Elahan is also likely the name of David before his name was changed to the title. So it's it's possible that that's the case and it fits well with the narratives of Elahan and David both slaying the same giant. So uh it, you have, anyways, this, this uh, 
connection with Goliath back to these giants and those five smooth stones that we talked about when we, when we first started out here. And it's important to know that David thought he was going to maybe have to take on those five different kings at that time, or five leaders of the armies if they weren't the kings of the specific cities. So it's Elahan who kills Lami in one of the battles. You also have a giant that's named um, Saf, and he's also killed by Elahan. And you have another giant... Um, that is going, oh, did I say, uh, I'm sorry, excuse me. And there's another giant named Sipai who's going to be killed by Sibakai. I know some of the names are, are, are kind of similar, but uh, just to give you an idea that the Bible is quite specific that these giants existed and they were killed by certain people uh, of David's mighty men. And then you also have uh, another giant that is called Ishi Benob, ben, Ishi Benob, and this is the six-fingered and six-toed giant on each of the four four limbs. So, all of these come from the same giant, and this giant Ishi Benob is killed by Abishai, and so. The, the major giants, as we say, are being killed in the various different battles because the, all of these giants that have mentioned these four of the five Goliath being killed in the time of King Saul aren't killed in the same war. There are different battles as, as you go through. So it, it's, it's what's going on here is a fulfillment of the covenant that David had undertook. And when David started off on these wars, uh, he, he first of all was looking at taking care of the Amalekites and cleaning that up uh, that Saul didn't finish. And we, we, then his next big set of wars, and it took many years, was against the Philistines. But David also warred against the Syrians, who are part of the Horim and a branch grouping out of the Horim that are out of uh, the Edom and Mount Seir area. And during the battle that comes after the Syrian wars, there's a battle um, that's at the Salt uh, <clears throat> Salt Sea location, and you're going to see the name. You're going to see Syrian, and you're also going to see Edom being used in the various accounts of Chronicles and Samuel. And that's just sort of reflecting that they're the same peoples. One's just a branch. So the northern branch is more of the Hurrian branch, and also some Horim in there, and there might even be some Hivim. They're all, as I say, those three branches are, are quite well connected, as the Avim are also with the Havim as well. And when we look at Genesis 36 with these Dukes of Edom, the Aleph kingdoms, they're alternating. When you look at the locations of those cities, there's many of those generations back in, in that time where they're alternating from Syria in the Mount Hermon region to the Mount Seir region for the capital city. So again, we have this long history of these, of these giants of, of the Horim and the, and the Hurrians working together. And the Hurrians are part of the, of the Hyksos um, that, that is part of that bloodline. And it's from 
the the Hurrians at the Hyksos get that technology that's going to be used to take over Egypt, and it's the same technology that the Philistines are going to be um, utilizing as well, and through the same dark-haired Indo-Aryans that we talked about. So we, when we look at this complex scenario in the time of King David, it is absolutely almost mind-numbing with the amount of enemies that are being led by giant nations. And the Avim is the tip of the iceberg to understanding the Philistine uh, empire. And once we understand that this was the empire that, for some reason, Moses didn't lead Israel straight north to, to invade the covenant land, I think it starts to shed a little bit of light that God understood that Israel was going to require a period of time, more than the 40 years, to forge their faith to be able to take on these giants, let alone the most powerful military-capable empire at that time, the ones who virtually expropriated the land that they wanted, they had subdued the Egyptian empire for, for a long period of time. And I would submit they may, even though they would be allied with King Og and King Sion in that Eastern alliance to a certain degree, they were even more powerful than King Og and Sihon and the Midianites all in the Eastern alliance. And there was also a Malachim, as we learn later in the judges, that would have been in that mix as well in the, in the wars of the judges. And it's my thought was that Moses didn't lead them up through Philistine because they weren't ready yet. They weren't battle hardy. And, and when we covered the battle of Atherim, King Arad, and that the Israelites were still not listening in terms of how they were going to go to battle and how they could win. And it had to be done through God because they just were not going to be capable of taking on these armies. And in fact, they get kind of a bloody nose in the first battle and they get whooped. And then God, they, they repent to God and God forgives them. And then he delivers the Canaanites led by King Arad in that first battle back to them. And so they're going to have a number of these periods where they're going to have to understand that they have to be totally committed to perpetual war against these nations until they win. And Joshua didn't complete the taking of the covenant land. And at that time, in the book of Joshua, we're told about the five cities of the Philistines that... Um, they were not going to take on at that time, and all of Israel was weary for war. But at a time when Israel was projected to ask for a king, that they have a king to be reigned over them like the other nations at that time, not only would the Israelites be requested, not requested, but commanded in exchange of a, having a king, they would have to complete their covenant obligations. And that started with the Amalekites 
for attacking Israel first and trying to have them wiped out from the face of the earth and riling up all the other nations to wipe Israel from the face of the earth and that they wanted to steal those covenant blessings and birthrights to place it, to place their own sort of dragon messiah into place and to have the birthrights, the blessings, and the messianic blessings. So they wanted to replace them because they're the offspring of Timna and Eliphaz. Eliphaz is the grandson or is the son of Esau, brother of Jacob, who lost all of that and thought it was stolen from him. At least certainly his descendants viewed it from that perspective. And I think even uh, Esau did for a while, but we also know he also forgave uh, uh, Isaac or Jacob uh, at that time. So this is all part of the geopolitical sort of makeup. And, and at the time that the king is being asked for, these covenant obligations were going to have to be completed. And so even though Joshua didn't complete the Philistine takeover and and subduing of the giants and running the giants out of that area, King Saul became king first. But as we talked about a couple of minutes ago, he fell short. And then so David was uh, brought up as, uh, you know, and had to grow up and after Saul dies, King David takes power, and now he, he has to take up this covenant obligation. And he wars literally for most of his whole generation to finish the job. And that's, that's the thing to remember, to finish the job. And if we look at the size of the covenant campaigns that Joshua and Moses undertook, and then it took another full generation to create the age of peace for Solomon so that a temple could be built uh, where God could live amongst his people as a selected as a a nation of priests to, to bring about the Messiah to be the resolution to the angelic rebellion via the Messiah, via the resurrection. It's just, it's just, it's very, the standard and the obligations that Israel was asked to stand up for is just absolutely astronomical. And as I talked about in in the last show that we did on David and Goliath, this is a good analogy for the end time. We had David standing up against the complete giant order, the queen complete Nephilim order of that time made mostly up of, of, of Rephaim and hybrid Rephaim. And the whole world was like that. There were this little island amongst the Gentile nations of giant nations and hybrids and that were ruling the people all, all around the earth. And David is kind of the warrior aspect of the Messiah, just as Solomon, even though he sinned greatly over time, he you know he was able to build the temple and gain great wisdom and be more of the priest aspect the the priest king aspect of it so you have david and solomon that are kind of mirroring um the image of jesus and jesus came back first to atone for the world world but he's coming back to conquer the world and to set up his millennium where he's going to reign as head of the Melchizedek order as king from Jerusalem that David took. In fact, the first thing that David did after being crowned in 
Hebron was he marched to take the city of Jerusalem. That's how strong and powerful these nations were. The people of Jerusalem, the Jebusites, had this fortress city uh, that was protected from all sides because of the fortress at the top of the, of the mountain. And these were Amorites and Jebusites that were occupying it, but they were ruled by Anakim kings. And also, it's this, one of the cities that the Hyksos fled to after they were run out of Egypt. And the Hyksos fled not only to Jerusalem, but back to Crete as well. So you can see how history continues to see the intersection of, 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 of the peoples that David was fighting against in the Confederacy of, of, the, of the Philistines. And that all through the age of the judges, Israel was not able to take that city. But because David was the one who was going to complete the covenant obligations, he was going to take the city of God. He was going to establish that as the center. And the epicenter of most prophecy is in Jerusalem. And this is where the first temple was built that Solomon was was uh, asked to, uh, well, commissioned to build, not David, because David was a warrior and had blood on his hands. Not that he wasn't doing things after God's heart and as he was commissioned to do, but it's that sort of splitting of the of the allegory of, of the Messiah that would come from their genealogies that turned out to be Jesus. And so this is the city that has the second temple built. It's the city that is going to have a uh, an abomination at and a temple that's going to be either in a rebuilt temple or on the wing of the Alaska Mosque, perhaps an extension on more towards the valley between the two mountains in Jerusalem. But that's going to be the place of the abomination where Antichrist comes to power. And so all prophecy sort of centers around Jerusalem in the end time. Uh, end time prophecy centers around Jerusalem being in the hands of the southern kingdom, which it is today. And that would kind of indicate that Jerusalem has come back to life. The fig tree, as they're under no, as they're understood in understood in end time prophecy, and Jesus is coming back to rule from that city. He's coming back to reunite the two tribes of Israel in the second Exodus. He's coming back for his first fruits. He's coming back for rapture. He's coming back for the resurrection sequence. And this is all going to be happening in the last three and a half years. And he ends the Nephilim world order that Charles Schwab and, not Charles Schwab, but Schwab, Klaus Schwab, and all of the Davos crew and the Committee of 300 and the IMF and all the World Bank and all of these G20 and B20 groups that are working so feverishly to bring about the end time and world government and the universal religion and the beast system that they're trying to put together it is going to happen, and it is going to happen in the fig tree generation, but understanding what happened in the old order helps us to understand what's going to happen in the new order. So they will come back. We will have that beast empire, and Jesus will come back, and he will finish the job for eternity of these bloodlines, just as Psalms 21 talks about in the time of the wrath, that 
God is going to, and Jesus is going to destroy the seed of the terrible ones, the seed from the children of men. And this is all tied into the geopolitical headlines that we see going on today as they jostle for power to bring about world government and those ten kings and the universal religion. So that ends my discussion on chapter 38 of the Avim. We ought to expect we're going to see descendants or a resurgent or a reappearance of these bloodlines and or new giants in the end time as we get closer. So people getting too far ahead of the prophetic chronology, you need to be careful. It's coming. It's going to get worse. There's lots to happen yet. Now, um, uh, not to keep on beating a dead horse, but uh, actually it's quite, quite the alive horse. Um, but what is it that have you settled on an official name for your new book yet? I have. I have. We'll see what the publishers think. I'm trying to get it off to them here in the next week or so. Um, and it's the Genesis 6 Conspiracy Part 2. And the subtitle is How Understanding Prehistory and Raphaim Giants Helps to Explain End-Time Prophecy. And it's all about connecting prehistory to prophecy, defining the allegories, and going really deep into uh, what the Bible has to say about all of the giant nations, how it affected Israel's history, uh, into the angelic hierarchies, that we have a better understanding of what's coming at us in the end time. And then going right into chronology of end-time prophecy. I mean, I can't cover everything on prophecy in, in one book, but it'll, it'll give you a format that starts to make some sense. That's awesome. Praise God. And um, what? so, of course, it, you know, like you said, it's up to the um, publisher, of course, but do they have any kind of, uh, in, you know, like early guesstimation of, or, or do you have a projection of when you think this might actually be available? I know, I know it's been kind of pending and queued up quite a bit, um, but uh, I, I think if my guess is right, there's probably a bunch of people that are chomping at the bit to get a hold of it. When do, oh, when there do you are, think, there are. What's yeah. your best guess on its availability? Uh, I, you know, depending on how I'm, how busy the publisher is, um, it this quarter's already got the queue up for what they're publishing. So I'm trying to get it into them soon, soon enough so that they can get it in for the second quarter publishing, and then. There's some other dates, you know, that help sort of promote the books, like you have the Christian Book Conference that goes on in June, and I would really like to have it launched there, and I'm doing a conference in Atlanta in May, so I'm really trying to get it done so that I can get it launched for those two events. Oh, that sounds great. That's awesome. Praise God. Well, thank you so much, Gary Wayne, uh, the author, author of The Genesis 6 Conspiracy. Um, again, how uh, secret societies and the dis, uh, dis, descendants of giants plan to enslave mankind. I think, I think after the last couple of years that went by, we all kind of feel a little bit enslaved already. So it looks like a work in progress, if you ask me. But, um, but anyway... <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, as always, Gary. Uh, it's, a, it's a powerful Thank blessing you. and one of one of the most popular programs that we, we, we've had um, because it's a, a mighty subject and very relevant to the days that we're in right now. So thank you so much. God bless you. Thank you all uh, for Welcome. listening to the program tonight. It's Sunday, February the 5th, and we will see you, uh, Lord willing, this Wednesday, 7 p.m. God bless you all. Thanks, Gary.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.